Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, hello folks and welcome to the Arate Podcast. Uh, Really fantastic today to be able to introduce uh, Brett Jarman, the founder and CEO of Help Me Leverage. And I've known Brett for quite a while now, but we've been working closely together for about six months. Uh, Brett is assisting me from a podcast production perspective and also really supporting uh, my own personal brand and becoming an authority within this space. And I know that we've spoken on other podcasts about, you know, the importance of becoming a key person of influence or being perceived as having an authority perspective uh, in relation to your core skills and capabilities. And, and Brett has been doing a fantastic job in working with me in that regard. You're probably seeing a lot more activity from Arate Executive on LinkedIn and even Facebook uh, in relation to blogs and activity posts and the uh, consistency and quality of the podcast. And that's largely been due to uh, Brett and his team. And uh, as I was saying to somebody recently, uh, it's rare that you start to work with somebody and they become a true partner and trusted advisor. Uh, But Brett has certainly become that in relation to me and uh, I would highly recommend anybody working in the space of uh, professional services or where you have a desire to build your own profile. Uh, Brett and his team do a fantastic job and uh, I'm sure uh, Brett at some point in the discussion today will uh, educate you as to how you can connect with him and and start that conversation. But today uh, what we decided to do was to turn the tables. Arate podcast is Uh, about 110 episodes in now and uh, quite a few people have been asking me to share my story so we thought today uh, that Brett would be able to talk a little bit about my background and uh, then moving forward uh, from time to time Brett will co-host podcasts with me uh, and bring a sort of a a non-recruitment angle to our conversations which I think will be really valuable uh, for people listening listening in. So anyway, over to you Brett. Thank you Richard. I think after that um, that introduction we should end the episode there. That was, <laughs> that was a cracking <laughs> intro, so thank you. And Straight off the cuff. There we go. And, and thanks for the opportunity. I, I really appreciate it. And, and I've, I've really enjoyed working with you over the past uh, six or eight months, however long it's been. I've, I've got so many insights into into the world of recruitment, but I'm still full of questions, as you sure. know. Um, I'm a very curious fellow, and, yep. and that's what I love about my line of work, is I get to ask lots of questions, and today I get to ask them publicly, right. which, uh, which makes a nice change. Good stuff. So, And I know I actually sprung this idea on you, I'll, I'll let the listeners know, I think it was about two or three minutes ago, Right. let's record an episode, let's turn the tide, and let's find out more about your backstory. You're, sure. You've, you've done about 100 interviews so far, um, so let's twist it around and find out more about how you got to be where you are and doing what you're doing. Excellent. Well, I'm in your capable hands. Excellent. All right. So um, let's go back to the beginning. How did you? How did your uh, working career start? Okay, sure. Well, Straight uh, out of school. Right. So basically, um, uh, my um, parents uh, 
My dad in particular, he was a professor of pharmacy. He headed the pharmacy department at University of Queensland uh, for about 20 years. But uh, part of becoming a successful academic is you move around uh, uh, often across countries in order to further your career. And so uh, when uh, he graduated with his PhD in the UK, he and my mum moved to Canada and uh, I was born in Edmonton. Uh, the year I was born, I think it was the coldest uh, winter on record for about 40 years and uh, it was regularly minus 42 degrees centigrade. So they lasted a couple of years there, moved to the US. My brother was born in the US and I ended up in Australia in Sydney when I was about four. Uh, did primary schooling in Sydney, uh, had a year in Scotland. Then my dad got his job as the head of the pharmacy department at the University of Queensland. So we came here and I did my high schooling here. And right through high school, um, you know, I, I loved playing guitar and uh, I loved the whole rock star thing. You know, my uh, favorite bands were things, uh, bands like Kiss and uh, Metallica and, uh, uh, but then a whole a gamut of um, uh, different styles of music. So I had this kind of aspiration to being a rock and roll star. So I started a Bachelor of Commerce uh, majoring in marketing in HR, uh, I think to keep my parents happy that I was trying to, uh, you know, lead a good and successful and um, valuable life, uh, but I only lasted a year at uni and then uh, I uh, started touring as a musician and I toured for about four years. Uh, I was in a band called Leather Zen and we won the Queensland Rock Awards in 1990 and we actually beat Powderfinger. So uh, that's probably the height of my musical success um, off the back of that we moved to Melbourne chasing a record deal and uh, I was in Melbourne and I was having guitar lessons from the guitarist from the Little River Band uh, whose name was Steve I can't recall his surname and at the time the Little River Band were the biggest band in Australia Johnny Farnham was their singer and yet he still had to teach guitar to feed his family and so I thought well um, you know, uh, I am nowhere near the calibre of <laughs> this guy. So probably um, time to go back home and, and uh, go back to uni. So I rang my parents and with my tail between my legs, uh, returned to Brisbane. I finished my uh, degree. So it took me eight years to get my undergraduate degree. And then um, I worked for James Hardy for a couple of years in a sales role. Uh, at the time, James Hardy was one of these environments where, you know, if you put your head down and you didn't sort of uh, rock the boat too much, it would be job for life. And uh, that didn't really suit my ambition. Uh, so I then went and worked for uh, a business called Berkeley Challenge, which at the time was part of P&O. And uh, it was in the facility management space. I uh, started there in a sales role. I moved into an operations role. I then moved into a regional management role. I lived in Cairns for four years, uh, managing a whole variety of um, cleaning, security, building maintenance, ground maintenance type contracts. Uh, at one point, I was looking after uh, a team that ran the Weeper Township. So I used to have to go to Weeper about every six weeks, which was um, you know, definitely the uh, Wild West then. Uh, not sure if it still is now, but... Uh, I got to see some really interesting um, different types of uh, businesses and different types of environments, whether it be mining or 
uh, ports or major shopping centres or commercial high-rise towers. And um, I stayed with them. I uh, left for a year and became uh, essentially the CEO of a, a construction equipment hire company based in Cairns. Uh, on a 12-month contract. Um, then I returned back to Brisbane and uh, returned to P&O in much the same role as I'd left. Um, uh, that business was then sold to Spotless um, and at the time it was sold to Spotless, the guy that I reported to uh, by the name of Peter King, uh, who's been a great inspiration and a mentor to me in my early career, uh, he moved across and became uh, managing Director and CEO of a privately owned national facility management company. So uh, he brought me across with him and I ran uh, national sales and operations for that business. And at that point I went back to university and did an executive MBA. Um, and like most people doing an MBA, started to contemplate my navel, you know, what did I want to do when I grow up? And uh, I went to see a recruiter that I'd been a client of and I said, look, it's probably time for me to make a move. Peter had only just turned 50. He had an equity position in the business. He wasn't going anywhere. Uh, so I felt that there'd be limited opportunity uh, for me in that business. And this guy said to me, oh, have you ever thought about being a recruitment consultant? Uh, and in fact, I would say that the vast majority of people kind of fall in recruitment, you know, along a um, uh, similar circumstance. So I joined what was at the time the biggest recruitment company in the world uh, called TMP Worldwide, which is now called Hudson. Um, and uh, interestingly, I was there for probably about three months and uh, I had two uh, you know, big insights into the industry. One was in that time, 14 uh, recruiters left the business. Uh, in the Brisbane operation. And so I thought to myself, here we are as a company going out and supposedly educating uh, organisations as to how to attract and retain staff, and yet uh, the company I worked for wasn't able to do that. And in fact, uh, recruitment has probably got the highest churn of any industry, um, and also uh, I think the statistic is something like 90% of people who join uh, or go to work in a recruitment um, organisation leave within two years never to return to the industry. So um, turnover is massive. Uh, and the other thing I realised was that if I wanted to be better than nine out of ten recruiters, I only had to do one thing, which was return people's phone calls. And uh, again, you know, I thought in working in the human resources industry, where it's all about connection and um, and uh, doing what you say and uh, and you know simple things, I was absolutely um, astounded at what a terrible reputation the industry had and largely how deserved that reputation was because um, the vast majority of recruiters then and even now uh, have such a low. Uh, commitment to delivering good um, customer experience, uh, in particular um, candidates, that I made it, you know, my creed that uh, I would not leave the office uh, every day until I'd returned every phone call. And, uh, and 
you know, that really, um, uh, that simple thing, you know, made me way more successful than most of my peers. So I worked for uh, Hudson for a year, and then I went and joined what was at the time, um, you know, quite a boutique uh, Brisbane-based private recruitment business called Davidson Recruitment. Uh, and I worked with them for about five, five and a half years. Uh, I started off building out their property and construction business, and then I took over a few more teams. And my last 18 months there, I managed uh, seven recruitment teams and about 45 people. Uh, I sat on their board as an executive director, so I didn't have equity in the business, but I was uh, uh, part of their board. And then just prior to turning 40, uh, I went and did a, uh, a retreat, which went for a week. It was called The Path of Love, uh, which um, is a title that you know um, doesn't really explain what this retreat is all about. but. Um, it really caused me to have a, um, uh, a good hard look at myself and what were the things that I enjoyed and didn't enjoy and what were my career aspirations. And I walked into that retreat, um, you know, with highly driven, you know, really wanting to move into a CEO role within Davidson's potentially, um, and within a week, you know, my ambition had been completely killed. Uh, I recognised that, you know, managing, you know, large teams of people, uh, particularly recruiters, was not something that I enjoyed. Um, what I enjoyed was just, uh, you know, being of service. Um, and so I went back to Davidson's and uh, I asked to be removed from my executive director role. And, uh, and not long after that, I left um, that business. And uh, after working very, very briefly for another international recruitment company, I started Arate Executive on the 1st of February uh, 2009. So we are just about to celebrate our 10th birthday. Awesome. That was a very extensive rundown. <laughs> very extensive rundown. And lots of little sub-talking points in there. Sure. First of all, I had no idea that you were born in Canada. That, right. That's news to me. Yeah. Um, uh, because I've lived here you know, since I was four, there's definitely no accent going on there. Indeed. And in fact, um, I've never been... I went back when I was 10, very for a holiday with my family, but... Um, you know, my parents are from England, so it's not like I've got stacks of relatives in Canada. Um, I'd love to go back at some point and, and check it out, but uh, yeah, I've, I've not been back there for now. I've just turned 50, so for 40 years. Right. Do you yeah. have dual citizenship? Uh, I can hold uh, three citizenship, actually, uh, oh, okay. English, Australian and Canadian. Right. And so when I tell people that, and particularly the fact that I've never lived and worked overseas... You know, people who'd love to do that think I'm a bloody idiot and, and yeah. you know, uh, uh, how lucky I was. Um, but, yeah, it, you know, whenever all my mates were doing their go and live in London for a year and, uh, you know, have their wild adventures over there, I was touring Australia as a, a lead guitarist in a rock band. So um, uh, I don't know who had the better experience, but I certainly had a lot of experiences on the road uh, that... Uh, 
uh, are fond memories. Right, okay. So if you ever, ever run for federal parliament, just make sure you clean up all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff. As I say to people, I've got far too many skeletons in my closet. They'd right. be they'd come out within five seconds <laughs> and I'd be a dead duck. But also, you know, I've met a lot of politicians in my career yep. and uh, I've got to say, I, I, you know, I have not one cell in my body that would like to be a politician. I can't imagine a... You know, a harder job, um, and a job that really, you know, um, changes people uh, in ways that you know are, are not what I would be attracted yeah. to. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Um, which leads me to my next question, actually, which was about ambition. You mm. mentioned ambition. I think it was about three or four times mm. in your in your history there. Oh, really? Okay. You, you just mentioned you have no ambition to be a politician. Yeah. So you went from ambitions to be a. a Musician, yeah. Uh, then you were in James Hardy, and and I think your words were, "It didn't suit my ambitions." Right. What were your ambitions at that time, and is it something that uh, changes a lot for you? Uh, look, I think um, uh, you know I, I had a fortunate upbringing. My parents were, you know, not wealthy, but they. Um, uh, my mum was a nurse, my dad an academic, so they did earn a lot of money, but they. You know, paid for me to go to a good private school and then uh, going to university and getting out into career. And at the time, you know, listening to people like um, uh, Anthony Robbins and Zig Ziglar and all of these sort of, uh, you know, think and grow rich. And, you know, uh, I got very much caught up in that, you know, very uh, typical... um, uh, desire to, you know, grow my career as fast and as um, uh, as fast as possible and to the sort of highest levels as possible. And I think that that's a trap that um, a lot of people get into. But at one point, you know, when I was at Davidson Recruitment, um, I lived for one weekend a month at a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist monastery uh, on the Sunshine Coast called Chenrezig. So um, I did a course which is the highest level of, um, uh, I suppose, a Buddhist study that a lay person could do. Lay person meaning you haven't taken robes and become a monk or a nun. So, um, you know, I was working at Davidson's and I was earning excellent money and very much in the corporate hustle and bustle and, you know, dealing with CEOs and aspiring CEOs in terms of, you know, the work I was doing and uh, leading, you know, a pretty... um, lavish lifestyle and then once one week in a month i'd go up to this buddhist monastery and hang out with these monks and nuns that literally um had very little possessions and uh and yet were so extraordinarily happy um and it was quite a uh confusing uh and confronting experience for me and one of the things i'd be very grateful to at davidson's is that they um introduced me to a coach by the name of Colin Clark. And, uh, you know, I I went to see Colin and um, uh, in our first meeting, I asked him, have you seen the movie The Matrix? And he went, yep. And I said, "Uh, so you know about the blue pill and the red pill? I want two red pills. (laughs) (laughs) And anyway, um, he sort of helped me to integrate, uh, uh, you know, my professional life with my... I hate to use the word spiritual because I don't regard myself as a spiritual person, but um, he helped me to to not see it as a dilemma, but to actually see it as you know a um, uh, uh, a 
positive attribute to be able to have you know uh, a broader viewpoint than you know somebody who is sitting in either side of that um, uh, you know that paradigm I suppose um, and then not long after I completed um, about eight months of working uh, with Colin you know every week I said to him okay great you know what's next and he said I'll go and do this path of love retreat um, and once again you know that was a life-changing experience um, I'd also, uh, over that period, done about seven Vipassana retreats, which is a 10-day silent meditation. So for 10 days, you don't, there's no reading, writing, TV, music, verbal or non-verbal communication. You can't even make eyesight with a person. And uh, for 10 days, you're led through you know, a very deep meditation experience. And um, being in your head for 10 days without any distraction um, uh, can be really, really challenging, um, but uh, extraordinarily beneficial. And I would highly recommend to anybody, you know, at one point in your life to go and do something like that um, because it's so far away from what, you know, most people's experiences, particularly now, you know, where they literally can't, you get in a lift and there might be seven people in the lift and every single person is on their device. Hmm. It's almost like people can't handle even. 30 seconds of um, mental quiet. Uh, so to go and do it for 10 days in that kind of environment is, um, is uh, pretty dramatic. So uh, ambition for me now is uh, broadening my community. Uh, I love to um, uh, be of service. I love to be uh, regarded as a trusted advisor. Um, I love to support people in achieving their full potential and arete is a Greek word, it means the fulfilment of one's full potential. Uh, you know, when we picked that name, when we were founding the business that really resonated with, uh, uh, with us um, and when I'm talking about us, I'm talking about myself and uh, Fiona Cochran who was my wife and uh, uh, is no longer my wife. but. Um, you know, we founded the business together and, and uh, we really wanted to create uh, a business that would support um, employers and candidates and our own staff uh, in achieving their full career potential. So, you know, um, there is a, uh, there's another Chinese philosophy called Taoism. Are you familiar with that, Brad? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, there's a lovely little book called The Tao of Pooh which explains Taoism through the, uh, the eyes of Winnie the Pooh. And uh, excellent, lovely book and uh, a good introduction to that. But one of the sort of philosophies of Taoism is that um, water sinks to the lowest level, um, but water is extremely strong. Water can move mountains, you know. Uh, and so by keeping yourself low, um, uh, you are able to be, you know, in your power. And I think that, that really resonates with me, you know. So rather than having an egoic um, orientation about trying to prove that I'm bigger or better or more successful than others, um, I see myself as very much uh, being there to, to support others and through the support of others, uh, I'm achieving what I want, you know, for myself. Um, and. Uh, you know, it, it, that works very well for me. Right, indeed it does. So firstly, kudos to you. Like, I know you're a very extroverted person. To, to, to put yourself away for seven, for, for ten days and then to do that seven times over, 
that must have been extremely challenging. It's interesting. Most people I spoke to, they talk to, they go, oh, you know, there's no way I could be silent for 10 days. Yeah. But actually, that is quite easy, you know. Um, uh, in fact, it's really nice to not have to talk. Uh, it's, uh, it gives you a real sort of break and a, you know, almost a reboot. What is difficult is, um, you know, the headspace. Uh, I can remember the first time I did it, I'd been sort of hanging out in this Buddhist community and people were talking about Vipassana and, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go to that and, you know, I'm on a spiritual journey and, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual warrior kind of thing. And I went along and uh, so prior to going along, you need to sign a commitment that you'll stay for the full 10 days and then the first you get there in the afternoon and they have a, co a discussion and you know, the, the, you have to be committed to staying there for 10 days and uh, you hand in your phone and you hand in your keys and you hand in any reading material you might have inside. And by about halfway through the second day, I was thinking to myself, what the bloody hell am I doing here? Uh, you know, I was absolutely bored. Like I've never been more bored in my life. Um, uh, and if I hadn't have made that commitment, you know, I would have run away straight away. And in fact, um, about 30% of people doing it for the first time actually leave within 10 days. Um, but anyway, I felt committed to doing it and surrendered to the process. And uh, I really fought it, but by about day eight, I uh, just got into this place of, you know, the only word that can describe it is complete and total bliss. Um, uh, I just, it was absolutely amazing and uh, um, incredibly powerful. Uh, but then each time you go and do it, you have a different experience. Um, the second time I did it, because I knew what to expect, there was nothing unexpected, there was no novelty to the process, I found that I could uh, get into a much deeper meditation a lot more quickly. And then other ones I've been extraordinarily agitated um, uh, and haven't really gotten much from the experience at all so you know um, uh, it's uh, it's it's something that's not for the faint-hearted um, because uh, it can force you to sort of look at things that you've pushed down for a long long time um, but uh, it's um, it's very rewarding as well right and, and nowadays is it something that you turn to in times of crisis, or have you got like regular practices that have come out of all, all of this work that you've done? They certainly recommend that once you've done it, you know, uh, you meditate for an hour every morning and an hour every evening. And each time I come out, I go, yes, I'm really going to be committed to that. And, uh, you know, I might last for five days or five weeks, but uh, I, I soon sort of fall out of the, um, the regularity of, you know, a, pr a practice as uh -huh. such. And, and right now as we speak, you know, I don't really meditate at all. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I can't say that I have a particular practice, but I certainly have a philosophy that I live my life by. Yeah. Um, and I have a viewpoint that, um, you know, has uh, been developed and uh, nurtured through doing a whole heap of this kind of work. Um, that whilst I don't have a you know a specific meditation practice, you know I can hold on to um, some of the perspectives that you know I wouldn't have otherwise had. Right. Okay. So you're an all or nothing kind of guy. Oh uh, yeah. You go and you infuse yourself with, right. with whatever you need. So do you go back to that on an occasional basis? Go back to these retreats, or is it? 
Yeah, look, I, I did a few very, very quickly. Um, and then uh, I think the last time I did one was about three years ago. Um, it'd be a nice thing to do every year, but uh, as you would agree, Brett, when you own your own business, to take 10 days out and be completely off the grid, uh, you know, is challenging. So um, uh, eventually, hopefully, I'll find an ability to have the time to do it every year. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, it's I can't imagine that I will do it frequently, um, but I'd like to keep up with it. Right, okay. So you mentioned some authors, you mentioned, was it Colin Clark? Yeah. Coach? Yeah. Um, who else have been big influences for you? Oh, Either people that you know or, or have looked up to? Oh, well, when I was um, uh, sort of growing up, I got into a particular guy named Stuart Wilde. And, Big fan uh, myself. Yeah, unfortunately, Stuart has departed the planet, but uh, I loved him. He's a very irreverent guy, mm. and he was a guy who, uh, when he was young, you know, he had this entrepreneurial idea that he was going to um, sell tie-dyed shirts in the UK. And he was so successful at it that he ended up um, booking out laundromats 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he had these people just bashing out tie-dyed shirts. And so uh, I, I guess this must have been back in the 60s. You know, he made um, what would be, he became a millionaire, you know, at a very young age. And, uh, and then started to really think about, well, there's got to be more to life than this. So he went down this... Um, you know, um, personal development, a very sort of spiritual type um, pathway, uh, but he combined it with being extremely, uh, uh, at times, uh, very crude and, and hilarious, and uh, and I really loved um, his energy. So uh, he was probably one of my dudes as I um, uh, was growing up. And then... Uh, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader, but I read all different kinds of things. And uh, I also like to um, go and do uh, uh, ongoing professional development. So um, I did an executive MBA. Uh, I've completed the Queensland Leaders course. Um, I went and did a program a few years ago called Key Person of Influence, uh, now Dent, and I found that fantastic. Um, I'm working with a business coach now named David Dugan and uh, his team are excellent. So, you know, I've always felt that I need to surround myself with people who can, you know, help me to achieve my greatest potential. Um, and as they say, when the, the student's ready, the teacher will appear, that a teacher has appeared in many forms, uh, not always pleasant. <laughs> right, indeed. So tell me, what, uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen in recruitment in the last 15, 20 years? Um, I came into recruitment when I was sort of, uh, I guess, about mid-30s. And uh, uh, at that time, uh, I would say, you know, some of the glaringly obvious differences are that, you know, employers were very ageist. So they wanted to employ younger people, believing that younger people had more petrol in the tank uh, and more ambition and I suppose were uh, more malleable. Um, so, you know, it was if, if you were recruiting a role and a candidate sort of appeared who might have been in their late 40s or 50s, they were definitely disadvantaged. Um, Whereas I think now, um, you know, there's, number one, there's a practical reality that, you know, we, this is an ageing population. Um, 
there are less younger people coming through and also organisations are really respecting grey hair, whereas in our case, no hair. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not uncommon. I'd say in almost all instances when we've been briefed on a role and I'll ask the question, what's too young and what's too old? Um, the employer will say, look, I'm, I'm not concerned about age. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, last year we placed a guy in a role building a new division for a very large global um, mining consulting firm, and I think he was 72. So, you know, um, I mean, that's not common, uh, but definitely um, people coming to me now saying, oh, am I too old because I'm 55 or I'm 60? Um, you know, they'll be certainly too old for, for some roles, uh, but, you know, I think that there is a much greater... Um, uh, uh, there's much greater acceptance of, uh, and indeed even an attraction to older candidates who can bring what we call a SCAR resume. You know, they've had some real-life experience. <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, uh, gender diversity is, a, is another uh, I would say in 98% of the time now when we are being briefed on a role, the client is proactively saying, we definitely want to see women on the shortlist. We would love to have a woman in this role. Um, so in the past, I'm not saying that they would have been adverse to women, but it wouldn't have been um, you know, such a proactive consideration. Uh, uh, now, you know, uh, largely um, clients are wanting to have greater gender diversity in their executive leadership teams um, and they are really calling out for quality um, female talent. It's funny because um, I've been recruiting a particular role recently and uh, for the first time in years that I can remember, the client said to me, look, we really think we need a man in this role because the type of clients they're dealing with, you know, it really requires a man. And the best candidate who is presented for that role is in fact a woman. Uh, so, you know, I'm looking forward to delivering that shortlist and saying to them, and this is a company that really values gender diversity. In fact, um, in most of their leadership roles, they have women. In this one, they went into it with a view of, we think that we need a man for, for a particular reason. And, uh, and the best candidate is going to be a woman. So, uh, you know, um, so that's another thing, uh, changes in recruitment. Obviously, there has been uh, a massive paradigm shift uh, when, when LinkedIn truly became perceived as a recruitment tool. So when I first started Arate Executive, I would say we were at the absolute forefront of the use of LinkedIn as a tool for sourcing talent. Um, and I would go to conferences with uh, other owners and CEOs of recruitment businesses, and those people would say, you know, we think LinkedIn's a load of rubbish and, and we uh, refuse to allow our staff to have LinkedIn profiles. Um, and I would think to myself, these people are crazy, you know, because this is where it is. Um, uh, back in those days, you could only see profiles within three degrees of separation. So if I'm connected to you, Brent, your first degree connection, your, con your connections become my second degree, 
their connections become my third degree and I can only see within three degrees of separation. So I realised the more connections that I had, the greater visibility. So at the time, I worked very, very hard to get to probably about 15,000 direct connections. I'm now pretty much at 30,000, which is the, the, the limit you can have. But, um, you know, if I could see, 50, if I had 15,000 connections, then I could probably see, you know, three or four million profiles. Um, why do I need a database, you know, when uh, I've got LinkedIn? And, um, you know, it was extraordinarily powerful. LinkedIn eventually cottoned onto that. So what they did then is they created a thing called a LinkedIn recruiter license. So you could just pay 12 grand a year and suddenly you can see every profile in the world. So that competitive advantage that I had, you know, evaporated overnight. Um, and then of course, uh, organizations would say, well, if we can have LinkedIn recruiter licenses, what do we need third party recruiters for? We can employ a recruiter on $100,000 um, and if they recruit, you know, uh, 20 roles in our business, they may save us um, over a million dollars. So particularly medium to large organisations started to build uh, teams of internal recruiters and give them LinkedIn recruiter licences with an expectation that, um, you know, their reliance on external recruiters would vastly drop. And, you know, in some ways it has. Uh, I would question, you know, some of the practicality of that in terms of you may be saving money, but, um, you know, what about other key statistics like average time to fill a role, quality of hire, retention of people, etc. Um, and I think that uh, there is still a very genuine requirement for third-party recruitment companies, uh, particularly in the search space like we are. But, um, you know, that's had a massive, massive impact on, um, uh, on the recruitment industry. And then now you have a whole heap of different recruiters coming out with different, you know, ways to skin a cat in terms of the way that they have their service offerings and so on. But in other respects, the recruitment industry hasn't changed at all. You know, so Morgan and Banks 30 years ago, you know, had a model of recruitment, and I would say, in the main, most recruitment companies are still operating under that same model, um, and they haven't recognised that, you know, they need to become a much more value-add solution, uh, otherwise they're just going to become irrelevant. Right. Mm. So, you, you mentioned earlier, there's a really high churn and burn rate in, in recruitment. Why do you think that is? And in fact, you told me once how many recruitment firms there are just here in Brisbane. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what it is now, but certainly back pre-GFC, uh, um, there are, I think, 600-plus uh, registered recruitment companies in Brisbane. Um, I imagine that that diminished, and then I imagine it grew, and, I, you know, I, it seems almost every day that I'm seeing a new competitor name out there. So, you know, one of the challenges of the recruitment industry is that there's no professional uh, qualification, there's no accreditation, there's no barrier to entry. You know, any idiot can print a business card saying they're a recruiter and um, it's a little bit like being an executive coach, you know, uh, away you go. So um, uh, that um, is one factor. Another factor is that some of the larger recruitment companies you know, seem to have a passion for employing 24-year-old English backpackers and saying, hey, Fred, welcome to Brisbane. You're our new mining specialist. 
and here's this young, you know, um, uh, guy or gal who are a blue sky with, oh, recruitment, you're going to make so much money and you're going to change people's lives. And, you know, they come in um, with a completely incorrect view of what this business is actually about. Um, I mean, fundamentally, at the end of the day, recruitment is sales. Um, and particularly when you've got people, for example, they were a lawyer, they were a bit over being a lawyer, so they think I'll become a recruiter of lawyers or an engineer or whatever. They come in and then they, they go, oh, I actually don't like the fact that I have to sell. So they don't hang around for very long. Um, one of the real issues with the recruiting industry is that recruitment companies, the vast majority work on a contingent basis, which means they are only paid if one of the candidates they present is hired. Um, and so you'll have an HR person in an organisation will say, we've got a vacancy and we're going to give it out to five different recruiters as well as trying to fill it ourselves. And, you know, whoever gets the placement wins. And recruiters go, oh, that sounds awesome. You know, and, and I, I, the reality is I don't know that there's any other professional service that would operate that way. And, the, you know, I, the, I say, imagine you go to a lawyer and you say, look, I've just murdered you know, somebody, um, I'm going to ask five different lawyers to represent me and whoever gets me the lowest short sentence I'll pay and the rest of them don't get paid. Well, lawyers would tell you to get lost. Similarly, if you went to an architect and said, look, I want you to design this building for me, um, I'm also going to get five other architects to design the building um, and whoever, you know, um, whoever's building I build, I'll pay and the rest of them work for free, you know the architect would say, get lost. Engineers, doctors, dentists, and so on. Nobody operates that way. And yet the recruitment industry, again, this history going way back to the sort of Morgan and Banks days, um, seem to think that that's fine. Uh, and as a result, uh, they don't commit to doing everything that's necessary to fill the role because they know that the, you know, the percentage chance of them filling the role is very low. So they could deliver, you know, underwhelming service to the employer, underwhelming service to the candidate, um, and largely they're being managed by KPIs uh, around activity, which are not actually enabling them to be truly, you know, um, professional in the work they do. Um, for example, you know, recruitment companies will say to their um, consultants, you know, you need to make 50 marketing calls a week. Um, and here you've got an HRD in an organisation who can um, can get up to 40 to 50 phone calls a week from recruiters. Oh, hi, have you got any vacancies? So the HR people are, you know, basically get lost. You know, I, I'm, I don't have time to deal with, you know, uh, 50 phone calls from random stranger recruiters wanting to take me out for a coffee and learn more about my business. Um, and then recruiters get pissed off because HR people won't return their calls. So um, it's, a, it's a very tough industry and uh, uh, it's very hard to cut through. Uh, but the good thing about it, you know, and certainly my own experience is by consistently delivering great service and, you know, being around and being visible, you know, like, you know and you've been very helpful for me in that regard, um, has enabled me to build a personal brand where the HR person will take my call 
and they will meet with me because they know that um, you know, I'm committed to my craft. Um, and there are other recruiters like me who are very, very good. But as I frivolously say in my presentations, you know, I wouldn't trust 98, 98% of recruiters to walk my dog, <laughs> let alone uh, fill a vacancy in my team. And, um, you know, that's, that belief is held by the vast majority of um, C-suite executives and HR people. Right. They are completely and utterly underwhelmed by recruitment and see it as a, uh, a truly regrettable spend. Right. So what barriers to entry do you think should be in place so that uh, the, the standards of the industry uh, can improve? Uh, I was at a, um, there is an association of recruiters called the RCSA, uh, which I don't belong to anymore, but um, I was at one of their conferences and I think uh, one of the Morgan and Banks guys, I can't remember which one it was, was talking about this issue and, and I stood up and made the suggestion that you know, there should be some form of professional qualification, uh, but, uh, you know, that fell very much on deaf ears. So, you know, uh, I, I think if somebody wants to enter this industry, they should need to get some kind of qualification, just like a lawyer or an architect or an engineer would. Uh, that would be useful. Uh, I think the hiring practices of a lot of recruiters, you know, to need to have a massive reconsideration. Um, uh, you know, the old saying, plumbers have the worst pipes or the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Recruiters are the worst at recruiting people for their own businesses, and I definitely put myself in this camp too, you know, but um, uh, recruiters are not presenting to prospective consultants what is reality about working in this industry. Um, I think if they were really... Uh, uh, truthful about the challenges and the frustrations of working in this space, a lot of people who would potentially have considered it as a career wouldn't. And in fact, you know, if the guy at Hudson um, had told me the truth about what I was getting in for, I probably would have never <laughs> joined this industry. Um, uh, I'm glad in retrospect I did, but uh, you know, it would be fair to say that the the picture presented as to what my life would be like as a recruitment consultant and what reality was were very, very different things. Right. So at what point did you decide you, you don't want to work for anyone else, you want to set up your own business, and what lessons have you learned as part of that process? I never had aspiration to own my own business. Um, and in fact, you know, when I was working at Davidson Recruitment, I would say for... Let's say I was there for about five and a half years. You know, the first four of those years were fantastic. I loved it. Uh, I loved the guy that I was reporting to. I was earning great money. I was being very well, you know, um, recognised for my contribution to that business. Uh, and then they had a uh, an organisational um, uh, restructure. Uh, I won't get into the details, um, but certainly people who are familiar with the business would know, you know, about them. And the environment changed substantially, and uh, uh, you know, and my um, my experience working there was not the same as it had been, um, and it resulted in me exiting the business under pretty unfortunate circumstances. And I suppose at the time, you know. 
as an employee looking at people who own a business, you have a very um, selfish view um, of what your entitlements are as an employee and uh, you know the fact that your needs are um, obviously the most important to you because they're your needs. But I don't think a lot of people who are employees really understand the, the stress and the, um, you know, the, the challenges of running a business, let alone running a business that may employ, you know, 100 plus people, which at the time that I left Davidson's it did, you know. Uh, in hindsight, looking back on that experience, um, I absolutely take my hat off to those guys mm-hmm. being able to run, you know, that business and, and run it successfully. So, um, you know, when I let, when I exited Davison's, um, uh, I decided that I had not had a proper break for a long time. So I, I decided that I would have uh, two months off work. Uh, I ran around town for two weeks. I had six job offers in, in two weeks very different than in the recruitment industry to what it is now. Uh, And I accepted one of those offers and then I had a week in Bali, uh, sorry, not a week, a month in Bali. And then uh, I came back and started in my new role. And I went back into an environment like Hudson and um, I knew almost instantaneously that I'd made a very bad decision. Um, And I suppose the main impetus for me to start my own business was I just couldn't see any organisations out there that I was really attracted to working for, and I just didn't want to work for a dickhead anymore. <laughs> uh, and look, you know, I'm sure a lot of people who've worked for me would probably say the same thing you, about you, me. You become the dickhead. That's right, that exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so you know, uh, I probably saw myself rather than as an entrepreneur, as an intrapreneur, you know, which is somebody who works, has an entrepreneurial orientation, but works within an organisation. And, uh, and I can tell you, you know, owning Aratay Executive for 10 years, particularly in what has almost always been a very tough market. I mean, we started in the height of the GFC, then we had the, you know, the mining industry going into recession. Um, trying to uh, reinvent the business and trying to attract and retain good people and trying to do that whilst having, you know, uh, you know, personal relationship challenges that unfortunately resulted in the, you know, the ending of my marriage. It's been bloody hard. And there's been many, many times that I thought, God, life would be so much easier to just go back and being an employee. Hmm. Um, uh, so I think you you know you question around being a business owner. Um, recruitment is one of those industries where because there's no barriers to entry, you see a lot of recruiters who have worked for um, firms and then they go, hang on a second, you know I'm giving up you know two thirds of what I bill. Um, why don't I just go out on my own and keep all that money for myself? Um, the, the uh, success of the vast majority of those people is um, in sustaining their business for more than a couple of years is almost negligible. Um, and in fact, uh, the fact that Arato is still here, you know, 10 years later, um, uh, it gives me some sense of achievement that, uh, you know, we've been able to weather, um, 
you know, a pretty rocky road, and yet ten years later be in probably the best shape we've been in mm-hmm. in that in that entire period. So, uh, what do they say? Fortune favours the brave. Mm. Indeed, it does. All right. So let's bring it full circle. You started off wanting to uh, be a guitarist uh, with Leather Zen. I mm. overheard you mention. Uh, in fact, you you. You beat a powder, you beat powder finger for an award, right? So, so there were obviously some talent there. I overheard you last week telling someone you've just bought a new guitar. Is the band getting back together? Like, oh, I've always said uh, so. I've played in bands pretty much right through, uh, but just for fun, yeah. You know, I have a um, uh, I have an album on Spotify, Richard Triggs, it's called uh, Songs of Light and Shadow, oh. and that's uh, acoustic sort of country blues, and that's me playing. Me singing and playing with a really good old friend of mine, Simon Gardner from school, who'd probably be rated as one of the best guitarists, definitely in Australia, uh, and is an amazing musician and teacher and producer. And so we've done we've done a second album, but I've been uh, just too preoccupied to actually get that up on Spotify, um, and that's been I think two years. <laughs> we finished recording that two years ago, so it's pretty slack, isn't it? Um, I was uh, playing guitar in a band last year called Speed Racer, and we have an album on, on Spotify as well. Uh, it's sort of a more of a rock band, and a couple of years before that, I was uh, singing and playing acoustic guitar in a country band called Truck Stop. Uh, and then, you know, uh, way back in the day, finishing school, uh, you know, I was in a few bands, of, you know, on the indie circuit, sort of pre Triple J days, we were very successful. Uh, one of those bands, um, uh, the drummer from Regurgitator played in the band, as did Simon. And so, yeah, it's been good fun. Um, uh, I can't say I've ever made any money from playing music. Uh, and uh, I have far too many guitars. Um, uh, I just find they're beautiful. Um, uh, I just love them. So I can't see me uh, ever not playing. Um, but right at the moment, finding the time to play has been really difficult. So I haven't been playing in a band for a year, uh, but next year I'm keen to, uh, you know, strap the guitar back on and get out there and rock and roll. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure we link to some of those playlists in the, in the show notes <laughs> so people can get even more insight into you. So um, thanks for that, Richard. That was, that was really interesting for me. Like you and I, we've chatted a lot, but I, I found out a lot of things about you today that I didn't know, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. Good. Um, and it's great to hear your personal background and your professional background, and just seeing the the man behind the story. So yeah, well, uh, you know, I think uh, part of my motivation for starting a podcast was to offer people insight into, you know, those who have walked the path before them and learn some of their uh, key lessons along the way. And I've interviewed some amazing CEOs and board directors and Kerry O'Brien from the ABC and Paul Patico, who was the, uh, the manager of Powderfinger and, you know, some uh, entrepreneurs and some corporate people and so on. And so, you know, I love doing it and I love listening to podcasts. And uh, I don't know how much, uh, you know, value people get from listening to this in terms of their own career, but... Uh, if it gives them a bit of a better insight in terms of what I'm all about, um, then uh, then happy days. Indeed, indeed. Thanks for the opportunity. No worries. Thank you, Brett. I appreciate you uh, taking the time. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Arate Podcast with Richard Triggs. 
We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.